0: good morning everyone my name is kevin lagore and welcome to another episode of the skywatcher what's up webcast Uh, we take a look at everything from what's up in the nighttime sky to equipment to helpful tips and tricks and of course at the end of the month we have a special guest on to talk about their specialty in the field of astronomy and what do you know it's the end of april i have no idea where this year is actually going but you know Ta-da! We're at the end of April. Um, So our special guest today is Dr. John Barentine. He's joining us from Tucson, Arizona. Um, We're going to be talking about light pollution today. Um, John has years of expertise on this subject. Um, He's also been a professional observer at Apache Point, um, working on various uh, telescope and operating systems out there. Um, And he's an avid amateur astronomer like the rest of us. So good morning, John. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, Kevin. Thank you for having me on the program today.
0: Absolutely. Um, so every time I have a guest on, I like to just ask them the same question. That's how did you get started in astronomy? Uh,
1: I have a, I have kind of a fun origin story and that, uh, is from not very far away from here for your viewers who are familiar with the area. Um, the, the United States National Observatory is located about 50 miles west of Tucson, which is the city that I'm in. Um, And I'm a native of Arizona, so I grew up in this part of the world. Um, And when I was a kid, um, I had a set of grandparents who had an RV and they went all over the state. They were transplants from Ohio, um, but they loved Arizona and they wanted their children and eventually their grandchildren to have the experiences of seeing a lot of these places. So, you know, we went to every corner of, of the state at some point. Um, and, and, and this was, I was probably first grade or thereabouts. And on one of those trips, we ended up at Kitt Peak. And prior to that, I hadn't really had any specific interest in this subject before. Um, but there was something about that place. And at that time, which was sort of the golden age of, of that facility. And there was so much going on. And, you know, you go up to this distant mountaintop in the middle of the desert, and there are telescopes everywhere and and you kind of get to see some of what they're doing um and at the end of that day I said to my grandparents you know what I'm going to come back here someday and I'm going to work here and uh, I'm sure they thought that that was adorable like you know the way kids are with you know one one week you want to be a policeman and the next week you want to be a garbage man or something like that um and so uh and so I kind of started getting into it and they bought me a telescope that year at Christmas and Um, So years later, I came here to Tucson to uh, study for my undergraduate degree at the University of Arizona, and I started working with some of the staff at the National Observatory who invited me to come with them on an observing run at Kitt Peak, Um, and we were on one of the smaller telescopes up there, and we had a cloudy night during that run. And so I walked down to the library and picked up the phone and I called my grandparents in Phoenix and I told them I kept my promise. I'm working tonight on Kit Peak. Uh, and so it was, I mean, that was kind of it. I never really seriously thought of doing something else. And um, sort of the rest is history and it, it continues to be an interesting ride. It's
0: really. I don't know about you, but every time I get to go to a professional observatory where you're kind of... on, And they all are basically on some mountaintop where you're winding up this really sketchy road at times. But there's kind of... For me, it's kind of exciting as you go up that road because it feels like you're making this trip to, like, Mecca in a way. But you can go do it in different places. Um, So I've done Kit... Obviously, you've been to probably more than I have, but, you know, McDonald Observatory, Kit Peak... Mount Wilson, uh, Lowell, Mount Lemon, but it's always that same feeling, like it's like you're just waiting to get around that turn to see the domes, where it's right. just kind of like you cannot get any closer to what you're about to do than that point. So there's something special about being on those mountaintops that feels like you are, you know, kind of on top of Mount Vesuvius at this point, where, um, or whatever i think i said the wrong mountain at that point but whatever um but you're up there and it's it's special at that point at least for me it's something cool about being on the grounds of something like that. It's kind of hallowed ground at that point when you're up there so Mm -hmm. um now over the years you've actually become i've i've seen some of your talks we've hung out at grand canyon star party before um we have some mutual friends as well and your primary focus is really on kind of educating about light pollution and its effects on things. And I know you've worked with IDA, but now you have your, is it your own company? Is it yours? Or are you just, uh, you work with them?
1: Yeah. I'm basically a freelancer at this point. Okay. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so with your uh, new company, um, could you explain to us what you actually do? And cause obviously being a freelancer and uh, working. It's kind of an interesting position at that point being you're assisting with light pollution education, but in what ways are you doing
1: that? Mm -hmm. It basically falls along three lines. It's sort of the the three legs of the stool that props up the the operation. Um, One of those is conservation. One is public policy. And then there's a, a third broad category that's a mixture of measurements and lighting assessments and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so there's the conservation side um, mainly supports people that are looking to apply to the IDA's international dark sky places program. So for example, Grand Canyon National Park is certified as part of that program other various state and, and national parks um, and also individual communities. So there are a number of cities and towns mostly here in the United States that have received accreditation by uh, IDA for their dark skies efforts and it's a it's a pretty rigorous process and and I think um, some people benefit from um, from my experience. I ran that program for about five years um, know it inside and out. Um, So sometimes they they just need some advice. Sometimes they want somebody to take on the management of that project substantially. It kind of depends on what their needs are. So that's one piece. Another is um, lighting ordinances. So I work with municipal governments in different parts of the country and, and even in some other places in the world, mostly at the municipal level to create outdoor lighting policies that uh, you know are acceptable to their communities but also are meaningful and that they really do address the, the the fundamental issues that are related to light pollution. Um, and in a way that makes everybody happy is the the goal, obviously. Uh, and then that last catch-all um, category is everything from assessments of of site lighting um, could be for businesses, homeowners, sometimes neighbor disputes. Um, you know, we used to get a lot of phone calls at IDA that started out something to the effect of, "My neighbor has a porch light," you know, help basically. Um, and then, you know, if uh, places uh, want a, a scientific assessment of their night sky quality, that's something that, that uh, I can advise them on or help out with. Um, I'm not a lighting designer, but I can look at designs and give an opinion, tell people, you know, you're on the right track here, or I would put a little more emphasis on this or that, um, just kind of helping them get over the finish line on some of those projects. So sort of in a nutshell, that's what I do now.
0: Cool. And I I know that's a big badge of honor for a lot of places to achieve that IDA certification. And I know Grand Canyon, I know I bring Grand Canyon up a lot. That's my place. It represents the state and it's an awesome place to be. But they, the national parks have spent, particularly Grand Canyon, have spent a lot of time and money to make sure that they are preserving their night skies. because as it's grown over the years, they say half the park is after dark. So they're basically treating the night skies as no different to preserving their geological formations as they are their night sky at this point. um, I'm sure you've worked with more of them, but it seems I'm assuming that's probably a likely cause across many of the national parks at this point.
1: It is. And it's an initiative within their organization, that by the time i came to this work about a decade ago there was a transformation that was underway as entities like the national park service were beginning to understand that the nighttime space is as you said it's an it's a natural resource that needs to be conserved they don't have a specific mandate to do it they have just developed a consciousness about it over the years uh and have seen that it it offers an additional recreation opportunity so it, it, you know it does fit with the park services mission uh, it's a natural resource it's also increasingly recognized as a cultural resource and so in in places like national historical parks uh, for example out here in the west chaco canyon national historical park in new mexico uh, is uh, certified by IDA for dark skies, and they really if you go there and you go to one of their nighttime programs, they weave in the story of the history and the prehistory of that area, and insofar as it relates to uh, dark night skies to um, to their programming, um, so they they've prioritized it at a level that's beyond what they're required to do by their congressional mandate, but I think it's because there is now a pretty wide awareness among a lot of people who work in the conservation space that in the same way that you would monitor your air quality or your water quality, monitor your, your other natural resources that you really need to be mindful of and monitor the quality of your nighttime space, as well as those things that we really associate with the daytime.
0: It's uh, it's in a way it's kind of funny about it because We're so busy on our phones. We're constantly looking down. Obviously, I'm sure you and I are both the same. It's hard not to be. But um, the night sky, it has that connection for people to where that is like our past and our history of where we've been. And this is how we told stories. It's very similar to seeing a petroglyph on a rock. So... And obviously you go to these places and they're like, don't touch the rock. Don't touch the petroglyph. We're trying to preserve it. Like, don't do any of that. So why wouldn't you approach the night sky in a similar fashion? They're just a lot larger petroglyphs at that point. So, Yeah, it
1: took us some time to get there, to to have that sense of of awareness that it has value. And that's, I think, the thing that changed in the last 10 to 20 years is that people begin to associate natural and cultural value with the night sky and and when i say value there's sort of an intrinsic value that you know like you mentioned it's something that's part of the heritage of of all humanity Uh, but increasingly there is a a a material a financial value to this through a, a form of tourism that's come to be called astrotourism where people will come from vast distances to to see a really Pristine night sky and the the particular benefit to the parks and the surrounding communities, which are often in rural areas, is that you, as we like to say, you can't drive through night skies. You know, you can come to the Grand Canyon if you're if you're coming from somewhere else in the world, and you can drive up from Flagstaff or somewhere like that, and you can spend the day there, and then you can move on, and that's what a lot of people do. Uh, and then there are those who will you know stay for some length of time but a lot of their tourism is really daytime only tourism. Well, if you wanna see the night sky, you're in it for at least an overnight stay. And the economic impact of that proportionally is a lot larger than daytime only tourism. And gradually people are beginning to realize this, that people will come, they'll stay for longer, they'll take advantage of more services in the area. And we think, we're still getting data on this, but we think ultimately that per individual, um, nighttime tourism actually is more economically productive in many cases, um, than, uh, than daytime only tourism is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, you've been to the Grand Canyon numerous times. I've been there a bu- as well as a couple other national park star parties. And it's, yeah, a lot of people there, it's very, it's like, oh, I didn't know this was going on. And then they stay for the night and they're like totally blown away. Cause it's like, I've never seen the Milky way or, the coolest thing for me is we're from the southern hemisphere and we've never seen the north star before or you know whatever it is it's you meet people from all of this is my favorite part about doing the national parks is you meet people from all over the world and them seeing the sky in that fashion impacts people in tremendously different ways um the fact that either a i've never seen the night sky like this before or i I have, but it's it brings me back to when I was a kid and the skies were better. It's like there's so much meaning to people on so many different wavelengths. It's really cool to actually be a part of those events. Um, and it is important. And I know we were talking a little bit before this that astronomy and space uh, science, as of the study a few years ago, um, at least for the state of Arizona, was bringing in about 250 million a year, which is like having a Super Bowl every year, and now that's probably gone up because of astro and stuff like that, especially here in the West. Um, but you see places like here in Arizona. You know, I know Joshua Tree has some places in Southern California. You know, McDonald Observatory has made a major push for light pollution ordinances near them with the the fracking sites and stuff like that. So. Uh, it seems to be kind of a thing, at least particularly here in the West, where we have the conditions for it, that it is a major push to preserve that through California, Arizona, New Mexico, um, Utah, at least southern Utah, and uh, probably branches of Colorado and Texas, at least west Texas. But, um, no, it's pretty—were you part of anything going on at McDonald Observatories
1: uh, I was a little bit. Uh, I I did my uh, PhD at the University of Texas at Austin, which of course is the the owner of McDonald Observatory, and so I spent Long some time words. out there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> spent some time out there during my PhD, but I actually ended up working more with them afterward through IDA, and that I'm I'm very happy to see in just the last few weeks um, finally culminated in. IDA announcing a dark sky reserve, which is a a kind of a designation that's more of a large landscape uh, kind of of accreditation um, spanning millions and millions of acres across West Texas. It's now the largest such protected place for dark skies in the entire world. Um, And they decided to call it the Greater Big Bend Dark Sky Reserve in part because the, the at the core of it is Big Bend National Park, which if if anybody your viewers have ever been down in that part of the country, it's incredibly dark down there at night. It's one of the darkest places in the lower 48 US states. And so they worked with the officials on the Mexican side of the border to bring in some protected lands uh, on the other side of the Rio Grande. Um, the, uh, the Texas legislature about 10 years ago mandated that for the protection of McDonald Observatory, that municipalities in seven counties surrounding the observatory site all had to adopt after lighting ordinances. So they've been working on this for years and slowly building up. And as you mentioned, worked with the the oil and gas producers in the Permian Basin, which is a large uh, producing field just to their east to lower lighting on on drill sites, for example, and try to reduce some of the gas flaring that was starting to make their, their night sky get bright over the observatory site. And now they have the world's largest dark sky reserve, which is a tremendous achievement. Um, So it was really gratifying to see that all finally come to to pass. And there's the observatory sitting in the center of it. And that's going to help keep them productive for uh, many more years as a result.
0: It's uh, incredible down there. I've been down there for Texas Star Party as well, which is actually Mm -hmm. going on right now. Um, But over the years, we have. It's been noticeable that it's getting brighter in certain parts of the sky, and it's sad to see that, and obviously I haven't been out there since they've uh, redirected some of that stuff, but it's still really dark out there, and it's incredible. You know, you hear all these things where it's like, the Milky Way, cast your shadow on the ground, or you can read by the light of Venus It's ridiculous when you actually get to see that. I mean, Venus out there, it's just like, my God, like set already. Because it's so bright. (laughs) It's like, it's crazy. But um, I have a lot of friends who do nightscape photography. And a lot of them have made the pilgrimage down to Big Bend uh, National Park. And it's, the pictures they get are unbelievable um, out there. So um, kudos to them. But I think that's an important note. And probably something that I think, especially this day and age, not very skimming the political side of this, but whenever someone says we're trying to conserve something, um, I think you get this, well, you're just a tree hugger kind of approach kind of a thing. But I think what they did with McDonald and the whole Big Ben region down there is really interesting because they didn't actually go in and say, You need to stop drilling and you need to stop doing this because you're doing this. It's like, why don't we work with you to be like, we understand the reasons you need to be here, but we need you to understand what your effect is. So how can we keep you here, but mitigate your effect on the the natural environment where you can kind of come up with that compromise? So it was kind of neat how they approached it in such a way to where they're not telling you to get out and leave they're able to come up with a kind of, I think that's kind of a big, uh, a big step forward on not just telling people no, because I think that's a reason why a lot of people are just like, no, we're not going to do that because I don't like you telling me what to do. It's like, well, we can meet in the middle.
1: All right. And, and, you know, Kevin, that's a good point because they work for years out there and this has become an absolute model. They work for years to establish a relationship with the, the oil and gas producers in the Permian um, long before there was talk of anything like lighting ordinances or the dark sky reserve um, to establish this relationship this good interaction with them and, as you said, not come in and say you're impacting what we do and you need to stop doing that that is a message that would not play well in West Texas because the, the Permian is, that's one of the biggest uh, employers out there. It was fascinating to me. uh, I got to know their uh, recently retired dark sky officer at McDonald. It was a guy called Bill Wren, um, who's really the, they, they should have, they should have called the uh, dark sky reserve after bill because he was so instrumental in its creation. Uh, But he had developed such a good relationship and good rapport with the operators that about, uh, probably eight or nine years ago, they started coming to him and saying, you know what, we're having some issues with the lighting on our drill sites and our employees on the rigs are bringing this to our attention because they're concerned about safety. And they showed him some photos that, that some of the, the, the rig workers had taken of, you know, masked lighting that was shining light directly in their eyes and, and they're trying to operate controls of machinery at night. And they said, can you help us Can you help us figure out how to make this better for our employees? And of course, then the message became about shielding and reducing glare and only putting the light where it was needed. And it was just an absolute win-win because the operator said, thank you for helping us figure this out. We didn't really have the technical expertise to do it, to know how to approach this problem in a way that will benefit us in our business. And at the same time also reducing the amount of of light spilling out of these uh these drilling sites uh, in the permian and that was affecting the observatory and so they worked together the observatory and uh one of the professional associations of the operators to produce a set of lighting guidelines um, for uh drilling sites that is i understand is being picked up in other parts of the world the the operators look at it as safety and reducing workplace hazards. Of course, all of us on the astronomy side and the the dark sky advocacy side, see it as a a win for dark skies. If they are using less light overall, it's better targeted to their needs. That means there's less of it spilling off the sites, less of it ending up in the night sky. It's a total win-win, but you had to come at it from this perspective, not that it's an us and them situation and what they're doing is incompatible with what we want. It's finding the middle ground where everybody can peacefully coexist. And we get not just holding the line, but in some cases we get actually a reduction in the thing that concerns us so much. And we come out a little bit ahead for having done that.
0: Now, do you find, uh, having been a consultant working with IDA for as long as you have, um, obviously this comes up, especially when we're talking about, you know, major metropolitan places that are kind of like, well, it, we never thought about it before, but now we want to do these policy changes. I know there's some places like uh, Fountain Hills here in the Phoenix area is making that push. Um, but how do you educate people who, obviously, they don't understand, they don't care about it, but how do you get that message across to where, well, here are the benefits? Because everyone's like, we need more lights because we need safety. And... Um, At what point, how do you educate people like that? Because obviously you're pounded on top of your head. That's like more lights means less crime, which isn't necessarily accurate.
1: You know, I, Kevin, I've been thinking about that and, and practicing it now for a while. And I, I keep learning things about this. And there are two aspects of it that really stand out to me. Um, obviously, we we live in a period of time in our culture and, and in this country, at least, where um, essentially every topic that you might broach is somehow politically charged. And there's a tendency for people to immediately divide into two positions, and they're opposed to each other, and they back off, and there's a lot of mistrust. There's a lot of inability to have dialogues. Um, I don't think that is a barrier for us, but we have to handle it a little bit differently. So for me, it's about meeting people where they are and not dismissing their, their preconceptions, their view of the world, the things that are important to them. When people say, I don't feel safe at night, I take that seriously. And when they say, well, I want more light because it will make me feel safe, I take that seriously, too. But it doesn't mean that the solution is just indiscriminate deployment of light. And if we start talking about examples of that, and especially if I bring up the issue of glare, then people start to get it. And so I'll come in behind that with a message like, you know, the idea is that we're not trying to take something away. Uh, as, As we, you know, one of the slogans alongside Half the Park is After Dark is that dark skies doesn't mean dark ground. Which is one of those preconceptions is that if you talk about dark and maybe that's where, that's what our problem is, is that the label for it is wrong. Dark skies, they think, well, that means that my neighborhood is going to be dark. It's going to be an unsafe place, and they immediately, you know, retreat to one side of the room and they might not want to talk to you. Uh, if you, you know, pitch the message properly to your audience, meet them where they are, deal with these issues and these concerns head on. You know, don't dismiss them, tell them that their concerns are valid and then say, well, how can we solve this problem? How can we make it better? And, and the the point is, what we want is better visibility at night. And that's where I think we find the common ground with people that they say, yeah, okay, yeah, I see what you mean. Yes, better visibility. And we say that doesn't mean getting rid of the light. That means thinking more carefully about how we use it. And I think as a consequence of that, if we do think carefully about how we use it, we just find that we need less of it. And in the long run, that's how we're going to solve this problem locally and globally is convince people that that they need less of it to do what they want it to do, and that the outcome is better if they go about it that way than the other. Um, The second major thing that I think has come about as a result of of thinking about this and studying it for a while is that people need more opportunities to see quality outdoor lighting in context. They need to see it deployed they need to, to walk through those spaces at night so that it's not an abstract idea when we say dark sky friendly lighting that they have an opportunity to see a demonstration of that so that they can feel what it's like to be in that space that's lit under those conditions and gradually they realize that they're they're able to see things better they can see the obstacles they could see the potential places where you know if they feel that their personal security is threatened by being in in a dark place at night, that they, you know, there's not a lot of places to hide, you know, where there are situations where that could make them victims potentially. And in cities where they have gone to the effort of trying to put up some demonstrations, like in places like parks uh, that are publicly accessible and people can come and experience it firsthand, I've really seen the the, uh, perceptions of this kind of lighting change when I talk to people, because now they can see themselves in those spaces. So if we take them seriously, and then we follow that up and say, this is what we actually mean, I think it is possible to change the minds, even of people who walk into this with what they think is a a very unchangeable mindset, if you will.
0: Yeah, because that's, you know, something at Grand Canyon, for example, it's like when you obviously stay there, they have hotels, you know, they have walkways on the side of the canyon, and um, you can walk them at night. They're well lit. You can see what you're doing, but in every spot, even when you're where the lights are at, you can still see the Milky Way in in June. It's like, it's obviously not as good if you stepped over to a darker spot, but I mean, the fact that you can see it, and it's still better than your backyard, but you are in a well-lit area by most people's standards. It's like, see, that's what we're talking about, so it's not that... Oh, I don't feel safe. It's like, well, what if we utilize the light better to make sure it's illuminating where you want correctly, but you, you're not blasting it off. It doesn't make any sense for you to shoot it upwards because unless you're afraid of birds attacking you or something like that, it, you don't need that. So it, it's kind of working smarter, not harder, in effect. So, um, where if someone wanted to get started, uh to try and bring these conversations up, what would you say is the starting point for, hey, I wanna bring this up to my local community? How do I bring night sky awareness to it?
1: That's a great question. Uh, And it it begins with a little self-education so that you know enough about the topic, you don't have to be an expert, but you know enough to be able to make the approach and in in a sense be able to articulate what it is that you want an elected official to do let's say you're going to speak to your town council and i always tell people rather than going right to your mayor or somebody like that at a high level make friends with their staff uh the people who work on the staff or councils uh have a great amount of power in terms of access to the people that make the decisions but they also are the ones who. Are doing all the practical stuff behind the scenes to to make the wheels turn. So getting to know those people. And really uh, the best way to become educated about this is to look to an organization like the IDA, the International Dark Sky Association. Um, Their website is darksky.org. If people have never seen it before, there's a wealth of information there that helps people get educated on the issue that helps build up their, sort of knowledge base, where they can then go and have these conversations, um, and know what to ask for. You know, so if you say, "I don't like the the lighting in our community," or "I think the sky is too bright here at night," you're if you bring up those concerns to your elected officials, there. What the time is short. <laughs> you know, everybody's busy. They're going to ask you what it is that you want, and to be then be able to say, you know, these are the kinds of principles that should uh, underlie our lighting policy in this community or these are the kinds of changes that we could make even to the lighting on city or town owned property that would make a difference because if, if the, the municipality sets the example for the residents, it's more likely that they're going to follow that because it, it then becomes viewed as a, a kind of an expectation. So the, the bottom line advice is to educate yourself first um lean on organizations like ida to help you learn what you need to know um and then you know get to the point where you feel confident where you can go and have these discussions and say there's a problem here in our community There's simple and cost effective ways that we can approach solving that problem and especially when you start talking money at the you know different levels of government people will begin listening to you because every municipal official is mindful of the bottom line and trying to deliver value for the tax dollars so if you can frame it in those uh terms you're much more likely to be heard and and have somebody take action so that's what it is it's educating yourself and then starting to make other people around you and in your community aware uh and so that over time you build up this momentum that will get you hopefully the change that you want to see
0: no and that's that's a it's a topic that I would like to support more, especially doing outreach and stuff like that. But it's, I think a lot of people think it has everything to do with astronomy and it's just a very small part of it where they go hand in hand. But um, it does benefit astronomy, obviously, but, you know, you kind of have to have it with your own. It's got its own momentum to it as well. Um, Is there something that you would like to see, you know, like your ultimate goal um that you would you would think would be a major major win um for the light pollution fight at this point i know obviously big ben becoming that level is a huge plus but um are there any things that you see that are currently in the works that if it does go through that would be a major uh takeaway
1: i i do kevin um the the real big prize that I think would would change the game entirely is for society at large to become broadly aware of the issue and aware of and accept the fact that under certain circumstances, light at night really is a pollutant. You know, nowadays, we look back at times like the 1950s and 60s when air and water pollution were out of control. And, you know, you go back and look at archive pictures of the skyline of New York City or Los Angeles in the 1940s or 1950s, the smog was terrible. Um, Some of your viewers will be old enough to remember moments like in june 1969 when the cuyahoga river outside of cleveland ohio caught fire because there was so much industrial waste being dumped into the river and it had been happening regularly since the 50s but on that day there was a photographer from life magazine who was there that documented it and saw that the boats coming out to pump water from the river onto the river to put out the fire and it was horrifying it was one of those moments uh that are not frequent but they're you know, these landmark instances where there's really a, a sudden lurching forward of the public consciousness on issues like these. And yeah, they're broadly under the heading of environmentalism, but I think over the to- uh, the course of the intervening decades, we've started to come to a realization that that's really what we're talking about is quality of life. And the environment is part of that. And and there are the other concerns too. It's not that, that any of them take precedence, but that it speaks to quality of life. Um, so if I could achieve one goal in my lifetime, that would be to see light pollution up there sort of on the same level as uh, clean air, clean water, uh, protection of endangered species. And to do that really well, at least in the United States, I think what we need is something like what I call the Clean Night Skies Act. In the same way that Congress uh, passed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act in the early 1970s, and just said, look, this is a problem. There are solutions. We're not going to dictate what they are, but we want the end result to be cleaner air and cleaner water for more healthy American communities. And those pieces of legislation were a tremendous success story. It's hardly imaginable looking back at those pictures of of things like the river on fire or the smog over the skyline of these, these major cities uh, that that wasn't all that long ago in the past. And I'm afraid that, like, in those cases, much with light pollution, we couldn't just go about it community by community. If we tried to do that, you know, those kinds of pollutions don't respect boundaries of cities. They don't respect state lines. There has to be a more of a top-down approach to that. And I think in the same way that, that we didn't really lose anything by enacting those really landmark pieces of legislation that we don't really stand to lose anything, but as a country, we stand to gain a lot if we did this, the least of which would be a tremendous savings of electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that that alone is something that's in our national interest. It's in uh, our interest from a national security standpoint. Um, the long-term sustainability of our society is obviously wrapped up in that. And I'm optimistic, You know, maybe not soon, but in the sort of the medium term future that we're going to start to get some traction, uh, in national politics on that issue. Uh, and that's my goal. Someday we'll have a, a major piece of legislation that'll fit, uh, right alongside those, um, those landmarks from the seventies.
0: And that's where I think astronomy is really interesting. Cause like I said, going to the grand Canyon or just any outreach event, um, Astronomy has this really unique way of it doesn't matter who you are, your race, your creed, beliefs, whatever. I find that when people step out, that that kind of cloak of night allows people to kind of calm down for a little bit. And when they see a telescope, there's kind of something deep down in your head that kind of unlocks whether it's just there for the time you're there you you've unlocked a whole corridor that you want to continue to find people have an interest in the night sky it's just one of those things where it doesn't seem obtainable because you're not encouraged to go out and look and why would you be because there's like eight stars outside to look at there's nothing neat to see but I've had conversations with people that on a normal day you would never ever discuss certain topics like that because you know it would end up he said, she said, this side, that side, red, blue, whatever freaking color it is. Um, it, it just gets ugly really quick, but it's like there's some profound method of thinking that even someone who knows nothing about astronomy can start asking these questions that get super deep. And you can have these conversations with people that you never thought you would. And it's, I find that when you're under a, a night sky, that is where a lot of that unlocks. Because I think there's a level of humility that comes out in people when they, you kind of take away the, you know, day to day garbage that we all deal with and just realize it's us on this ball in this universe and that's it. And that's all we got right now. So. You know, I'm sure you've seen it at Grand Canyon, too, and the dark sky events where you have people who they just kind of get like you just see them standing over there by themselves and they're just looking up, trying to kind of fathom what they're even looking at. And I'm sure from your perspective, that's kind of the ultimate experience for someone where it's like, we need to preserve the night sky. It's like, well, why should I? But then the ultimate experience is to take someone out to that sky and be like, because of this And when they just shut down and it's like, I don't even know how to take this in. It's like, you could have this in your backyard if you really wanted to. So, but here's how we make that happen. So,
1: who doesn't want to look through a telescope? Everywhere I've ever been, every outreach event I've ever done, you attract a crowd immediately. People, it's one of those rare things where for a subject that people think they don't know very much about. And, and at first might seem almost unapproachable and, and oh, the distances are so vast and the universe is such a big place, but they all want to know more. And that's from the littlest kid to the the oldest elderly person who you might speak to. And it transcends all of those things that you said that where people are from, their class, their race. Uh, it's one of the few things in our world that, in theory, is the same for everyone. You know, there's only one night sky. There's not an American night sky and a Russian night sky and a Chinese night sky. There's just one, and we all have an opportunity to share in that. Um, as an aside, one of my favorite stories about uh, that kind of, of thing that I've ever experienced was several years ago while I was working uh, for IDA, I had the chance to go to Korea and um do some foundational work there that led to the the first international dark sky park anywhere in east asia which is is in south korea and um in a very rural part of the country and talking to locals and being at their little their local observatory and we had translators which of course facilitated a conversation but there were things that we didn't even need to say out loud that once we were out there under the night sky and we started pointing at certain things and you know i would say i i call that group of stars this what do you call that there was an instant connection and i i was able to figure out you know they could tell me something about the the stories of their folklore in the night sky through the translator but there was the same enthusiasm in talking to those people who we otherwise without the translator we could not have said a word that the other would have understood but here was the thing that we were looking at, we were having this shared experience, uh, and there's very little of that in the world now. As much as things like the internet have enabled communication, and you know, we were told that that was going to bring the world closer, and it's arguable as to whether it has. But there's there's just that that one night sky. I don't know if you were at the the Grand Canyon Star Party the year that uh, the organizers set up the telephone. Did you see that? That was
0: wild. Wasn't that Um, crazy?
1: It's up there on um, YouTube. People can go find the recording. If you
0: guys haven't seen this, so I think it was Raider. Raider's the lead ranger up there. So this, I don't know where they got the idea from. So at Grand Canyon a couple of years ago, there was a telephone that was set up on the edge of the observing field on a little table. I think it was an old rotary style, very vintage thing. And it's hooked up to some recorder or something like that. And it was kind of in this area that was kind of private. But people were encouraged to just walk up and have a conversation with somebody that the Night Sky made them think of. And it's a pretty heavy video to listen to. Because, I mean, there's stuff that people just let out. And it was, it's like therapy for some people. I've completely forgot about, but it's on YouTube somewhere um the Grand Ca- just like Google Grand Canyon Star Party telephone or something. But they recorded all of that and people it it is it gets really deep. And I don't think they've done it again. I'll have to ask Raider if they're going to do it again because that was really neat for them to do because it was what does this night sky mean to you and people who have no idea what astronomy is or they've never returned to the star party at all you get caught up in that moment where it's like everything in the world is stripped away and it's just you under the sky and it's it is wild um in a good way but it was very profound thing that they did up there with that so um, so we have like a mountain of questions, so <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going to dig through All this right. real quick, because I know you and I could talk forever um, on various things. Um, first question, should we push more cities and towns to reduce light pollution or just send people to dark sky parks? I sometimes feel the environmental responsibility is lost on many main city town officials.
1: At some level, we have to do both of those things. Uh, And and what I mean by that is if we want to save those dark places, we have to address the issues in our cities. And sometimes even, you know, amateur astronomers I talk to say, well, I'm not really worried very much. You know, the the sky in my my city or town is already a lost cause. And my my club has a a dark sky site that's three hours away. And that's that's good enough. And my response to that is, well, what are you going to do when it's four hours away? We're six hours away. Mm-hmm. The idea is we really do need to deal with it everywhere. It's not just you know protecting those distant places, which they are useful because they show us the possibility of what could be. Not that we're going to have you know these kind of fanciful artistic renderings that show the Milky Way over Times Square or something like that in, in New York City, but that more people will have better access to the night sky everywhere at some level if we do that and we really have to target cities. I'm convinced that that's the next frontier in dark sky advocacy, is that we have to go directly to cities and we have to give them good reasons to make change.
0: Awesome. Um, Real quick, for those who are interested, I found the um, recording that we were talking about. Um, It was a vintage cassette recorder from 2018. I will put that in the chat, unless Jared already found it. I think jared found it never mind same thing thanks jared or jeff or whoever's marring the chat um listen to it it's six minutes long but it's pretty amazing maybe you could do it at your event um uh further to the last question hard to meet in the middle of a light um, light pollution i have found a lot of resistance and lack of understanding from city officials largely false notions about light uh, night and safety um John, are you available for hire to do presentations to city officials and staff to discuss light pollution and mitigation strategy? Uh,
1: short answer is absolutely, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, that can be very effective sometimes because again, as I mentioned earlier, it's about pitching the message appropriately to the people you're talking to. And I do not shy away from talking about the light and security issue uh, and it's a it's a complicated subject. It's I would love to be able to say that it's you know that there's there's nothing that supports adding all this extra light. It turns out, as far as we can tell from the science, that it really depends on the circumstances. and there may be cases where more light is better for people. It's more secure, it enhances public safety, but there are just as many cases where it's not. The whole point is assess the actual need on the ground there's no one size fits all solution and simply putting up light where it isn't already or making a a bright space even brighter may not give you the result that you want and there's even some evidence that it could go in the other direction so that's what i tell municipal officials in addition to talking about how all this will save the money is you really need to examine your individual circumstances Where there's a genuine need use the light we're always going to come down on the side of safety, but far more often than not the light is there for no discernible purpose other than it makes people feel safe. There is value in that there is value in a community that feels safe, but as it turns out there's a sense of diminishing returns once you get to a certain brightness of light and adding more does not increase those feelings of safety it's that first margin where things suddenly jump up from darkness to low light that you get the strongest effect in people that's powerful
0: nice um for anybody who wants to get a hold of john uh dark sky uh, we put that link in the chat so if you want to reach out that's how to get a hold of john um does IDA have a program or plans for one similar uh, to the Planetary Society's Day of Action where members go to D.C. to talk with their representatives about planetary exploration and
1: defense? I'm not aware that there's anything quite like that in, in IDA. It's, a, um, it, it's much more oriented at the grassroots and on the local level. It's uh, the idea is that it, it will it'll percolate upward from the grassroots towards these, these higher level jurisdictions. Um, there are others, maybe not necessarily in IDA, who are also working on individual state legislatures. Uh, if you have the opportunity to speak to uh, your member of Congress, for example, if they're, you know, they all make visits home to their home districts at different times of year, you can call their office to arrange to speak to either the the member of congress or uh, hint even better talk to staff once again staff have all the power uh and and kind of coming at it from both directions um but there's not really something that's uh, that's organized right now towards that goal that i was talking about earlier of something like national legislation um sooner rather than later we're going to have to start talking about getting that more organized sense of things together i think
0: easier said than done on that level yes as well, so. <laughs> um our office has lights that turn off um, when no one's there and turn on automatically can street lights be done that way i'm sure they could
1: so they, they can. can and in a few parts of the world they are um, what you're talking about broadly is what we would label adaptive controlling so you are changing some characteristic of the lighting according to need and the important aspect, there is that sense of need there's humans benefit from all this light at night, the environment does not. So what we're looking for is the sweet spot in the middle where we're catering to those real human needs, but we're not going to overboard in the other direction. And so with adaptive controlling, you can modify things like the brightness of the light, the duration that it's on during the night, such as with a, a motion sensor. So the lights on when people are there to use it, and it's turned off otherwise. And there are even companies and and uh, labs that are experimenting with things like changing the color of lighting during the night. Mm-hmm. Color makes a huge difference, both for the night sky as well as for uh, wildlife and conditions on the ground. And so, in you know, but but also you know, certain colors are more beneficial for public safety when traffic volumes are high, for example. You can cities around uh, rush hours, So think in the winter when it's getting dark early. But during the course of the night, you could gradually shift those colors away from the ones that are a bit more harmful to the environment. Um, The costs are still relatively high. That's the downside. It's an add-on to a piece of lighting equipment. But in the long run, you recover some of that cost or all of it. Because if you're switching the light off when you're not using it, then you're not providing electric power to it and over the lifetime of the fixture you're you're certainly going to pay for the equipment that way but people have to generally have to make those decisions up front because there are not a lot of opportunities to add on those controls after the lighting goes into place
0: it's very similar i mean you go to like grocery stores now and you go down the frozen food section and they're they turn off when no, but it, it doesn't make any sense for those to stay on when no one's like when no one's you there know, you're yes. just wasting this energy and it makes sense like okay it's Three in the morning. Very few people are on the road, and you have this whole thing lit for what reason? And you're just burning up, you know, all that electricity for various reasons. You're paying for nothing at that point. It's just a big waste. Um. Last question that's floating around that I see here is this an issue that Scenic America nonprofit can also advocate for?
1: Yes, and we have worked with Scenic America and its chapters on and off over the years, especially in the issue of um, LED or digital billboards. You'll sometimes hear those labeled things like electronic message displays. but it, you know if I talk if I say digital billboard, people know what I'm talking about. Um, the outdoor advertising industry says this is the way of the future. They're inexpensive to operate. You can change the messages on them endlessly. And the problem for us is they are broadcasting light essentially sideways. But as with other kinds of lighting technology, the same thing that's the source of the problem could also be the solution. And if it was done properly, it could be better than the technology that preceded it. And so, you know, we're working with the companies that that operate these billboards and manufacturers to try to limit the range of angles that they met into try to keep that light more focused on the ground, trying to get the light brightness set correctly. Um, Scenic America and the chapters have been good in working with us on uh, bills in certain state legislatures to put constraints on the operations of these signs. Um, We just had a big win in Utah recently um, as an example. Uh, And again, it's not that we're opposed to outdoor advertising. We're not opposed to illuminated signs. It's about getting the conditions set properly so that the advertisers target audience sees the message which is what they're paying for in the advertising and we're not going so overboard that we're just shining a bright light into the face of people you know on the interstate blinding them so creating potentially a public safety problem and they're also not even reading the message in the advertising that's again a story where if we get with the the, the the people on the side of where the source of the light is and the people who are concerned about that, and we find out where that metal space is, I think we could see a future where those billboards are properly regulated. You can read the messages at night. They're not overly bright. They're off during the overnight hours when no one is out there to see the messages anyways. The advertisers get their message out. We reduce light pollution. That's a win-win. hmm
0: I know that was a big thing in North Phoenix a few years ago along I-17 heading north to flag staff. Um, I had to revise that because I can say flag in Arizona, and most people will understand what that is. If you don't, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that got shot down because it, they didn't pass it um, for all these LED signs that were going to go up along the interstate there, which... Uh, was a win but I could see how approaching it to where it's like no we can do it but there's some things that we could do better to benefit both sides um oh that's not a question never mind I thought we had another question there but it's just a comment so um well that's pretty much it uh John thanks very much for hanging out with us um if you guys want to get a hold of John, uh his let me see if I can put this back in the chat. There we go. Um his uh link for the company there is in the bottom of the chat there, darkskiesconsulting.com. He does talks, presentations, um consulting obviously because it's in the name. Um but fantastic to get a hold of him if you have any questions on how to help preserve and start your uh night sky ventures on preserving the skies. Um any final comments you want to throw out there John?
1: Only that there's something that everyone can do that will help solve this problem and there's there's no act that is too small so I encourage everybody to build this into your outreach messaging, talk to your local officials, let's save the night sky for the next generation.
0: Well, awesome. I couldn't have said it better, actually. Well, that's it for today. Thank you all very much for hanging out with us. Um, Have a great weekend. I think it's New Moon weekend. It's dark enough for the Texas Star Party to be going on, so get out there and go check it out. Um, Do some observing this weekend, and we will see you guys next uh, Friday for our What's Up for May. I can't believe it's May, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, but we'll see you next weekend have a good safe weekend and take care of everyone again and take care everyone again and take care everyone again and take care of everyone again and take care everyone again and take care everyone again and